Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and how the movie Alien is about what happens when you don't listen to the smart lady. I'm Rachel <laughs> Perkins, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. Tight clothes are flattering on people who are not me. Oh, same, sweetie, same. Um, today on the show, we're talking with, haha, surprise, Kendall Miller, President and General Gadabout at Reactive Ops. Hi, Kendall. Hi, Rachel. This is kind of exciting. It's been a while since we did the episode with just you. But before we dive in, can you tell me what a gadabout is? Well, I don't know, but you're it, basically. Oh, okay. So oh. I, I'm just going to agree to this word that I don't understand. No, that's fine. That works for me. Um, um, so yeah, I, uh, I said I would uh, get back at you from last time, although last time was a pretty pleasant experience. So, you know, introduce yourself. Tell, uh, tell us about yourself. Yeah. So gosh, um, I'm Kendall Miller. As I said, I'm currently uh, president at Reactive Ops, which is um, an interesting position I'm still getting used to. It's relatively new. Uh, there's been lots of changes at Reactive Ops in the recent past and um, still adjusting to those. Uh, I do, I've held just about every position in the company except for engineer. Um I haven't written meaningful code in a very, very long time. Uh, and most of the time, if I attempt to, the engineers in the company just make fun of me. What, what um, is not meaningful code? What counts uh, as you know, code? Well, I mean, it's probably even been 10 years since I wrote non-meaningful code. I, I spent a while, uh, right when the Twitter API came out, coming up with a fancy way to tweet news stories easily because I thought this would be really cool. And it was oh, yeah. a lot of Drupal and PHP. <laughs> and uh, I got a long ways in before I knew that I should have regretted those decisions from the get-go. <laughs> you have made um, a huge mistake. <laughs> Yeah, I think I spent like five, six days on it just as sort of a pet project and quite a bit of time and realized that I had made a decision early on that would require me starting over again if I wanted to continue it. And I threw the whole thing out. Oh, uh, like your save game was just ruined. Yeah, I hate that. Yeah, so that was the non-meaningful code was a bunch of PHP for my <laughs> own entertainment's sake that I thought maybe would be published if I succeeded and I didn't get very far and I threw it all away. Well, all right. Well, I mean, at least you only wasted five days instead of years of your life, like some people. Um, so, true. yeah, uh, you you uh, worked your way up from the mailroom at Reactive Ops. What? Uh, how did you get to where you are now? Yeah. So, gosh, that's a long, complicated uh, answer, like everyone has on this podcast. <laughs> it's um, so familiar. I'm. I know. As soon as I said it, I was like, "Oh, it was my one chance to not say that." Um, <laughs> <laughs> Cannot help so, yourself. That's right. So, my distant background is technical. Um, you know, I was writing code in fifth grade and uh, very into writing code by tenth grade. It was mostly C++ back then, but I spent a lot of time down a lot of rabbit holes writing all kinds of things from games to encryption and uh, really enjoyed that. I made a conscious decision to get away from uh, hands-on computer stuff in about 10th grade uh, and Why? got an English what? degree. Why did you I was sitting at my computer in 10th grade. I sat down at my computer at like eight in the morning and started hacking on something and I looked up and it was 10 at night and I hadn't gone to the bathroom and I hadn't <gasps> eaten and I hadn't, I'd done nothing. I had just been swallowed by this complex problem solving, which is what I loved about writing 
code. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also scared me because I'm, I know that I'm an extrovert and I, I, decided right then and there that I was sort of choosing computers or people because I was clearly incapable of doing both. Incapable <laughs> uh, of moderation. <laughs> yeah, it was it was like it was a very interesting experience for me to be like, whoa, I I need to not do this anymore. So um Mm-hmm. I went to college and studied English literature, even though a lot of my credits were computer science. Uh, I worked at a small tech company that invented uh, something very similar to Twitter about five years too early, um, <laughs> doing Q&A for them, which uh, was a very interesting experience. And then I moved to China and worked for a large uh, nonprofit for a long time. And there I started getting leadership experience. I mean, I was pretty young. I was 22 the first time I was leading a team. Uh-huh. Um I had taken over a team that I'd been on and then uh, a year, maybe two years later, I was given the opportunity to recruit a team, open a new branch office, uh, ran that team for about three years and then did that again somewhere else. So I got a lot of experience. Um, these were tech companies? No, this was a large, is a big religious organization. I, I tell oh. people we were doing leadership and strategy consulting for churches and NGOs. And um, I see. Okay, and that's yeah. that's who sent you that that path took you to China. That's well, I went to China with that organization and ended up staying for a long, long time there. Yeah, for ten years. It seems like the the, the time you spent in China had a huge impact on your life, which obviously that, that makes sense. So can you talk about that a little bit? What did you learn there? What, what leadership lessons did you learn there? I mean, so there's a lot of things about leading intercultural teams that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, multinational teams. We had uh, Chinese people on the teams that I was leading. I was often working with Filipinos, people from uh, other countries as well. And yeah, there's a lot about just communication styles and understanding what is my culture and how I need to flex to your culture uh, in those situations. Um I mean, I think it was a, it was an unusual experience getting leadership experience at a very young age, right? Like I was, oh yeah, twenty four when I recruited you know a team of ten uh, ish people and was was sitting down in a room thinking, I'm the best thing that's ever happened to leadership, and I'm going to show you all how to not <laughs> screw teams up, you know. So I was like twenty seven by the time I had. <laughs> I was like, you know, I was 25, 26 by the time I had learned that uh, I can't avoid all of the problems I want to avoid. I just also create a lot of Kendall-shaped problems. Um, and so I, I had already been humbled pretty substantially by a number of failures by Oh, I want to hear age. about this. I wanted to ask, like, you know, obviously you fell on your face a few times when you were that young and having to learn these sort of cross-cultural uh, leadership lessons. Can you talk about one or several that were particularly uh, embarrassing or useful or both? Oh man. So it's, it's easier to point out the, uh, the amusing stories when I'm not the brunt of the joke. Like I, I, the, I remember (laughs) at at one point my boss uh, was from the Philippines and he, you know, he had, he sounded just like an American. He'd been around Americans for a long time. He had almost no accent, but he was still, you know, very uh, stereotypically Asian in the fact that he was very uncomfortable with direct uh, communication. And mm-hmm. so he took me to a McDonald's once for a one-on-one and we sat down and he had a sheet of paper on the table in front of him with a list of like four things that I could read because it was a McDonald's table that was very short, you know, and the, and the list says things like dress nicer, act more professional, don't make crass jokes. And, I'm, and he's, 
yeah and he's like twitching and shaking in his seat and scratching his head and he's like um well um i want to address the and i'm like nelson i can read what's on the paper and none of it's a surprise to me just go <laughs> for it uh but yeah. then you know when i was leading asian uh you know co-workers realizing that i need to be careful about how direct i give my feedback or you know what the response is going to be um I'm trying to think of any particular blowouts. Uh, huh, there's this, you know, and then, you know, did you learn to speak Chinese at that time or uh, had you studied it before you went? Was there any kind of language amusement barrier? Because I, I know there are lots of language puns in Chinese that you can't really make in the U.S. And I find that. Oh, really man. Interesting. I, I, I can tell you language jokes all day long, for sure. <laughs> like, there's the, the number of times I have put my foot in my mouth because I thought I was saying one thing and was saying something else. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, so I studied Chinese for a year in the States in high school. And the book that we used had 10 lessons and we spent a semester doing five of them and another semester doing the other five. And when I moved to China, we'd used the same book and we did a lesson a day. So we'd gone through the same thing in two weeks that I had done over a year in the oh, States. So it was family. as though, what's that? You did that with your family or with your coworkers? No. So I was uh, officially in school for a large percentage of my time that I was there. I also completed a ah, master's okay. while I was in China. But no, I learned Chinese really pretty well. I speak Chinese very well for a person who is as uh, white as I am. Um, <laughs> it's... Uh, that continue to prove useful? No, no. I thought it would be useful when I moved back from China and tried to get a job, but uh, nobody was really very interested in that skill, which was a little bit of a surprise to me. Okay. Um, um, and yeah. I do know that you miss uh, like authentic Chinese food that you have experienced overseas and you can't find here. What is uh, What is your go-to for making up for that? Oh my God. Oh my, well, that's so I thought you were going to ask, what is my go-to? Like, what's the food that I miss the most, which is different than what I can find. So there, there's oh, a restaurant. Yeah. There's a restaurant in Denver that serves, uh, it's a Sichuanese restaurant. They serve American Chinese food. You know, if you want general toes or orange chicken or whatever, you can get that there, but they have ganguo, which is, it means dry pot. Uh, and it's a Sichuan dish. That's if you've ever had hot pot, it's like a fondue where you're boiling stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. slowly over usually several hours but gangwa is the same idea but they do it for you in the back and bring it out so it's already cooked uh, you don't have to work nearly as hard for your food which you know has its <laughs> advantages and disadvantages interactive <laughs> right interactive but this approach. place this place nails it i mean it is dead on it's so 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 good so i go back a lot um my favorite dish and what I have not yet found in the States that, that was delicious is is called dapanji, which just means a big plate of chicken, but it's a Northwestern dish. I like a Sichuan take on it. It's it's a very mm. specific flavor that I'm looking for. I did go to Seattle uh, in December this last year and found a restaurant that serves dapanji, but it, it, it was a very different flavor than I was hoping for. It was close, uh, close enough to get me very excited, but not close enough to scratch the itch. Oh, well, so, keep looking. Can't win them all. Yeah. yeah perhaps yeah. the Bay Area has what you're looking for. Love There's some variety. great Sichuanese in Bay Area, but I, I have not found a Dapanji place yet. Mm -hmm. uh, keep it keep it going. Keep looking. Yeah, you need yeah, a project. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Someday. Uh, so you have recently changed roles. So if you, you went from uh, working for this large religious organization um, and teaching 
uh, or, or supporting people who are training training people, giving them leadership lessons, that kind of stuff, organizational lessons. And what happened after that? So uh, we moved back to the States because I have four children and they were reaching school age and it's difficult to have four children in China. Um, mm -hmm. There's, there's, that's a much longer in-depth conversation, but we moved back uh, a little over four years ago and I decided I wanted to get back into tech partly because, um, you know, I still have the technical background. So I understand a lot of the underlying technologies, even though, you know, even particularly the company I work at, all of this tech is new since I last wrote code. But uh, I started looking into different possibilities. Um, and, you know, this is sort of where I landed. I found a job post on Hacker News looking for site reliability engineers. I wrote the uh, founder of the company and said, hey, I'm not an SRE, but these are the things that I'm good at and uh, was hired initially just to do sales for the company. Mm -hmm. um, so I did sales for a while, moved into operations uh, for about a year. I was the VP of engineering, um, which- You're talking about reactive ops right now. At reactive ops, yes. Yeah. Oh, so that okay. was all yeah. at reactive ops. I did briefly for like five months, I consulted for a Chinese sheet metal company in Houston mm. uh, doing sales for them. But okay. uh, yeah. All right. So then, yeah, VP of engineering and then- right up the ladder, right? And then right up the ladder. Well, so I was COO and then took over as VP of engineering as well. And then moved, we, we promoted someone internally to that role. And I moved back to just COO for a year. I was the acting CEO of the company. Uh, and then we had a change of ownership about six weeks back. And uh, so I moved to president and yeah, well, thank you. It's, it's kind of an interesting change going from, you know, everyone in the company reporting to you to no one in the company reporting to you. It's, it's, uh, yeah. What, what, how does that feel? <laughs> well, it's it's something of a demotion, but I also got paid more for it. And let me just say, yeah. if, if I can get paid more and demoted the rest of my career, I am completely okay with that. You're, um, you're on board. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a it's a nice place to go. No, so it's been good. I mean, the the new CEO is is wonderful. There's a lot of things that he does that he's clearly better at than me. Uh, I'm very pleased for him to be there and for you know whenever there's a problem with the company and you're running the company you lose sleep at night because it's all your fault. Like at the end of the mm -hmm. day, the buck stops with you, even if other people are messing up. Um, and now they're his problems. So they get to keep him up at night. And I, I, you know, I'm here to help. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't care. It's just that I don't have to stress about it quite the same way. So, so, so yeah, I mean, that. you're, you've been there a long time and you have a lot of context for various things that are happening or have happened do you, um, what is your role in terms of driving the direction of the company? Are you, are you advising the CEO? What is the, what, what way do you have to continue to have influence at ReactiveOps? Well, so, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of things that I do. Um, the first thing was just to sort of help the transition go smooth, right? We, not just a new CEO, we brought on a new CFO, a new VP of strategy. We just hired a new VP of sales. Like there's just a lot of change at the company. And, and I think first and foremost, my role is just to help that go smooth. You know, I need to communicate to the whole company that these new leaders have my trust and that I'm sticking around and fully back them and believe we're going in the right direction. And I, I do actually believe deal. that. Yeah, which yeah. is which is really helpful. Um, <laughs> and 
so so a big part of my job is just helping that go smooth because I do still have the trust of everyone in the organization where everyone who's new is still earning that trust. And I think they're doing a really good job doing that, but it's it's going to take time for them to have the same level of trust across the organization. Yeah. And you're sort um, of proxying their trust, uh, the trust of the, right. of, of, you know, the, and the team uh, that's been there and has known you to have been around, they're looking to you to see how you react. I think that's right, the thing that right. a lot of leaders don't realize is <clears throat> in those kinds of situations is how they behave uh, is going to really impact how the rest of the organization responds to, you know, leadership cha- change up the chain. It's a big, yeah. it is a big deal. Well, and years ago, I mean, gosh, uh, almost 10 years ago, I promoted a report to be the director above me. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I sort of learned in that experience, like I need to demonstrate that I absolutely trust this person and I'm going to listen to them. And I didn't promote them so that I could undermine them. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm here to give them full support. And in seeing that I'm giving this person full support, they know they can also give that person full support. I think that's the same role. That's a significant part of my job right now here. Um, yeah, it sounds like you were able to get your ego out of the way. For that. Well, that, it, there was an initial ego hit. Like, don't get me wrong. Uh, when the when the the chairman of the board told me that uh, I was not going to be the CEO going forward, I think I said, "Can you just stop right there?" And I ordered a gin, and I said, <laughs> "Wait until this kicks in a little bit, and then we can continue the conversation." Uh, because uh, my mind is already there, but my ego is going to take a little bit to, to catch up. So there was definitely an like, ego hit. But I uh, know it's nine a.m., but I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was in the evening. No, but it, it was. <laughs> Even then, you know, I told them uh, when when I first met the the people who were you know buying the company, um, I asked them about whether they would keep me in place or not, and they said, you know, what if we don't? And my response was, if you can find someone that you know is really going to do a wonderful job, I'll be thrilled to work for him. I just don't want to have to support someone that I'm going to have to feel like, you know, I, I don't want to stay on and feel like I have to run the company and make someone else look good. And uh, yeah, oh, that would be rough. Yeah, and I'm and this guy is really wonderful. I mean, he's been a VP or a CTO since I was in junior high, right? Like this guy knows what he's doing. And it's not to say he's perfect. There's things that that I do better than him, but he's even humble about that. Hey, you you keep doing that. You're doing that well. And so, it's working well right now. Um oh, That's excellent. Has has uh, this person um taught you anything so far that you uh that you can think of? I mean, there's a lot of just the the big picture he definitely has way more experience than me just running a company, right? Um, there's a lot of the big picture, long tail things where for the vast majority of the company's life cycle, it's been just a like, how do we survive the next six months, right? And part of that's just startup life, uh, mm-hmm. having your head down and just how are we going to continue to make payroll and grow and make the right changes that we need to make. And when he came in, it was very much a, what is the long-term strategic direction? What do we want to be true four years from now, three years from now, two years from now? And what do we need to put in place today for us to get there? And these are the things I think need to change. And yeah, he just has a different macro level view uh, that, you know, maybe I would get to eventually, but but he brings in on day one. Um, and uh, so I've learned a lot just from watching the way he thinks at a macro level, the things that have stressed me out historically, and he just sees the longer arc of the company, don't stress him out. Um, well, but it also so sounds kind of like, you know, they came in and 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 uh, you know the money changed hands and it sounds like there are deeper pockets perhaps to uh, allow you to breathe and think about the future. 
So well, you're, it's you're not... learning about what you can do when that is possible or... Well, it's not really, it's not like we were, uh, took on a bunch of investment and now we have a bunch of venture money behind us. If we needed to go that route, we could. The company has been profitable and increasingly profitable. Uh, but when we're in a sale process, we couldn't dip into that, those profits as much as, you know, we maybe would have liked. Like if, if we weren't selling the company eight months ago, we would have made a lot of different decisions in terms Mm -hmm. of where we invest and how much we take out of the bank to go invest in things. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like the resources that we've had are just now freed up for us to use. We're not really, uh, we don't have, we can have deeper pockets if we need them because we have the connections to go get those, but we don't need deeper pockets. Uh, we've been a very profitable company and it's just time to spend that money very strategically. Yeah. Time but, to think about the strategy. Yeah. I, I'm just you know, thinking you would have gotten to this as you said, but you hadn't gotten to it. And now you're benefiting from someone who's done that cycle before, which is good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a there's a lot that I think we could have successfully run this company without this change and without these new leaders. I think there's no question we're going to do a much better job with the experience that we've brought on. So I'm I'm very optimistic about it. But cool. uh, um, and so you know, pushing a little bit more on the question that I asked before, um, the you're learning from from your your new leadership how to do long term planning. You know how to think about. Uh, things in a little bit more strategic manner than perhaps you have before. What is uh, what was some of the best or worst leadership advice you've received in your career? <laughs> you know what's what's impressive, and and I think it, it's it's more impressive too. As I think about the leadership situation right now, I, I uh, interviewed for a job a, a while back where the interviewer asked me about my past leaders, and I was sort of giving a rundown. And I remember uh, the interviewer said something like you make it sound like all of the problems have been your leadership. And I remember stopping and looking at her and thinking, you know, I may, I may have even said like, has your experience been that most of your leaders have been good? Because that's not my experience. Uh, you know, I think like there's, there's a handful of people, every leader that I've had has had wonderful skills and uh, shocking weaknesses. Right. But I think mm-hmm. it's, it's been less about advice. Um than just the the model that I've seen from really great leaders, the example. you know, yeah, the example that they've set. Like it's it's really, you know, the the hardest leadership lesson to learn. I think you know, and it took me three four years to wrap my head around. Was like the the product is no longer, or my job is no longer the thing we're working on. My job is my people, and that's frustrating because I can't look at my people and say, here's what I have accomplished with them, right? Because they're not, it's not code. It's not uh, a training. It's not whatever it is, right? Producing work is different than uh, enabling people to produce work. A lot of people think that that is like writing code and everyone is a widget. That's some of the major problems with leadership that I see is people not seeing their team as individuals who need, you know, particular types of guidance and support. They just think of people as interchangeable widgets. Yeah. And like, I completely get that. And I I have definitely seen that. And the leaders that have driven me craziest over time have been leaders that have seen people as a means to, you know, just, just get the thing done rather than, uh, yeah, rather than part of the joy of doing all this, right? Like, um, Mm you know, when we have an engineer quit, there's, if it's all about me, it's like, raise your arms in the air and shake 
your fist at the universe because my thing is the most important thing. And how dare you quit to not help me build my thing, you know, but if, if part of the joy of leading is just helping people advance in their career and get to the places that they want to go and somebody leaves and goes someplace that they've always wanted to go, you can just delight in that. Hey, we were able to get this person to where they wanted to go next. And uh, you, you can know, you have can... both of those emotions in your, in your body at the same time, right? Uh, I'm right. really happy for the person and I'm bummed that we're no longer getting the benefit of their input. For right. Sure. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so is that, that's in line with the kind of, <laughs> this makes me think of, uh, of uh, the previous episode, the, the last interview that we did and um, my being shocked that our guest had not, had had a, a review ever or something like that and then uh and then you being shocked what are you have you had good management what is that like uh when you well, were even to your interviewer regular reviews yeah i mean i i have a, there's there's a couple of just great leaders i had but I, I mean i've had a i have uh several times in my career gone to my boss and said i think you need to leave this position you know, you're not leading effectively. You, you may have previously, you may have been great up to X point or Y point, but you're not anymore. And, uh, you know, I remember, gosh, what was it? Probably 10 years ago, uh, that one of the directors over our department of about 50 people stood up in front of that entire department of people and told him, you know, I don't really buy what we're doing here. Like, I don't really think we can actually accomplish it. <laughs> it, it looks really cool on paper, but like, I mean, who are we fooling? And I remember sitting him down. His name was Daniel. And I really liked Daniel. I really respected Daniel. But I was like, Daniel, you have to leave this job, right? This like is, wow. nobody nobody can follow you if, if, if you're telling them that you don't believe in what we're doing. Like, why are we here? And um, you know, he was like, <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. And, you know, and then – when somebody who really did care about it came in and took that position over, it was just this like stark contrast. Someone who knew what they were doing. They knew how to cut through bull crap. They knew how to, you know, nail down what was going on. And, uh, well, it, oh when gosh. you first started telling that story about like, well, I've told my manager managers to quit their job on multiple occasions. I was like, just to be clear here, you're, you're talking about telling your boss, but then you were, uh, then you told that story and I'm like, well, yeah, I would give that feedback as well. Oh uh, yeah, to, yeah. To my management. Uh, you have to. You have to. So that's a funny story about like early in my so that boss. So I asked that boss to step down. And so he stepped down as the director and he just led one of the city teams. And so I took over as director for six months. And this is when I, you know, promoted a report to take over that director role because it wasn't a fit for me long term. But so I took over as director and instead of just leading my team, I was now, you know, leading three teams in different cities. And I flew back to this other city and sat down with a team that I had been a part of previously and thought that I really understood a lot of their problems. And they were having lots and lots of problems. And I sat in this room and I pulled out a whiteboard pen. I started asking questions and trying to drill down to the motivations of people. And why aren't we getting along? And why is the team having conflict? And why aren't we hitting the goals that we're trying to hit? And, and I just started spiraling in a circle and I could get nowhere. And I was just kind of dumbfounded. <laughs> like, why is this going nowhere? And then, uh, my boss, so the, the next level above the director, uh, was, 
you know, he was like an area director over all of China, happened to be in town. He happened to be at this meeting. And I stopped and at the break handed him the marker. And I'm like, I can't get anywhere. Can you give this a try? Because I've seen you cut through bullshit before. And he stood up and he had probably 20 minutes in front of the crowd, this team doing the same thing, just this downward spiral of terribleness. And he finally stopped and he's like, why are you all here? And they went around the room and to a person basically said, I don't want to be here. Here's why I'm here. And we were kind of like, oh, this is why this whole thing's a disaster because every one of you is miserable. Oh yeah, it was amazing. Um, Well, uh, uh, at least you had someone else step in it the same way you did instead of just being alone. It's always good yeah, to have yeah. companionship in that sort of fail boat. Yeah, uh, I had to, I had to come back to that team and apologize a month later for thinking I could walk in with a whiteboard and a marker and solve all of their problems. Uh, that was so a humbling do you, experience. What were the problems ultimately? Were that so the fact that they didn't want to be there was it about the meeting itself or was it greater than that? No, no, not that they didn't want to be in the meeting. They didn't want to be on this team doing the things they were doing. Uh, yeah, it was like, I don't want to be a part of this company. I don't want to be in China. I don't want to be, you know, like all of this, like, wait, what, why the hell are you here? You are not (laughs) in in power to solve that level of problem. Well, I mean, there's some amount of just, you know, they needed some vision casting. So they were excited about something they were doing. They needed to be enabled to do some things differently than they were doing. There was a lot of, a lot of underlying things, but, but yeah, I mean, if, if you have a whole room of people, working on a product that everyone thinks is a shitty product. That's a problem. Is that the lesson there is don't spend an entire day talking to people before stopping to ask them what, what, you know, what the problem actually is. (laughs) Yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. Walking in, assuming, you know, what it's going to take to fix a situation is uh, not usually going to end well. Uh, Unless you check uh, those assumptions. That level of arrogance may be one of your uh, less good characteristics as a leader, uh, although I imagine that has changed <laughs> since you were then. But what do you think your like think so. strongest or best char- characteristic as a leader is? Oh, gosh, that's a new question, Rachel. You just sort of slipped that one in there. Um, yeah. Uh, try it I out. think <clears throat> that's right. I mean, I think I've made enough mistakes that I, I, I no longer... Um, feel like I have to have the answers or that I even have the answers, which I think, you know, I, I, I like to think I approach situations more humbly than I did previously. Now, I, I have an absolute terror that uh, somebody who works with me is listening to this going, ha ha, that asshole uh, has no idea how disconnected from reality <laughs> he is, right? But I, I mean, I like to think that that's the case. Um, I... Um, Gosh, I don't know. I think one of the biggest things that I bring to the company currently, and it's it's it is a leadership skill, even though it feels a little disconnected from that. But just I'm very widely networked, kind of naturally. Um, when I run into a problem, I don't try to sit and solve it in isolation. Uh, I have a lot of places where I can go and pull on for advice, and I think that that makes me a better leader regularly. Yeah. Um, and I think you're the most extroverted person that we have ever had on this podcast and you're on it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I am very extroverted. I'm also an extrovert that's extremely out of practice because I work from home. And so I, I get out in these small bursts and, you know, by day three of a conference, I finally come completely out of my shell and then the conference is over and I go back to my office and I, it takes three, three more days to come down. Uh, it's kind of a yeah, funny Yeah. You were situation. just at a conference, weren't you? 
Yeah, I was just the last yeah, two yeah. days. So you're still coming uh, down. Still yeah, coming it's, down? it's a big adjustment for sure. So um, what made you decide to do this podcast? Oh, goodness. Well, so throughout my career, I think the most helpful thing to uh, to to me has been getting people to talk to me who uh, the kinds of people who intimidate me and just having conversations with them and finding out that they're people too, and that they have insecurities and struggles and worries that I can relate to. Um, you know, it helps me constantly overcome imposter syndrome, which, you know, I feel like I have less and less of anytime I'm in a role for a long time, but, uh, you know, it's always going to crop up. I I'm constantly stepping into situations, uh, that I am woefully underprepared for and uh, humanizing people that I have tremendous respect for and finding out that they're just like me is just really fun for me and encouraging oh, I like for me. That. I like that uh, that use case for this podcast is that, you know, it's it's to help people listening overcome their imposter syndrome by listening to, you know, people with a lot of experience or with useful and wise things to say. Uh, and that, but they've also, you know, made stupid mistakes and have grown from them and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I, uh, I also enjoy that aspect of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you, you're pretty extroverted. You were a leader early on. You were given a lot of, um, opportunities to lead from a, a younger age than a lot of folks. What is your relationship with authority? Uh, do you feel okay about having authority over other people or vice versa? So I've thought about this question, knowing that it's coming when when mm-hmm. we when we do this. I think you cheated. So I, I know I did. I did cheat. Although if anyone who's going to be interviewed for this podcast doesn't listen to a few episodes and recognize that we have <laughs> they, some themes yeah. here, you know that's that's. I'm not bothered by that, but they have every opportunity to to think ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I think of authority like this when I remember the first time I drove a car. So I just moved back to America. Uh, I was 16 and a half ish. And my dad took me out to a big, it was like a church parking lot in our neighborhood, you know, just a really big parking lot uh, with not much to run into. And I got behind the the wheel of, it was a very large Buick sedan uh, and, you know, go stop, go stop, turn right, turn left. How do you feel? You know, I feel comfortable. And then my dad's like, great, let's go get on the interstate. And uh, <laughs> I was like, you know, Wait, what? So we get out on the interstate. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. Like, you know, we I I remember flooring it on the on ramp, uh, white knuckling it for all of a mile on a flat, you know, straight piece of uh, interstate, and then getting off, and then immediately feeling like the city roads were like not intimidating at all as we drove back to our neighborhood, which was you know probably only a mile and a half from the interstate, and. we drove around just a little bit more and he's like, okay, why don't you drive us home? And I'm driving down my neighborhood street going like 20 miles an hour, holding onto the steering wheel and thinking, this is a huge vehicle and I have no business being responsible for something this big. You know, if I bump into somebody by accident, I can do them significant bodily harm, if not worse. Right. And like, uh-huh. Uh, I think I'm in control, but all I have to do is like blink and, and turn a little bit, you know, wrong at any given moment and I'm going to crash. And like, this is terrifying. And the way I think about authority is very similar. Like today (laughs) I can drive a car very comfortably. Right. But I do regularly think 
everyone around me is just assuming I'm going to continue to obey the rules either by will or by sheer competence, right? Like all I have to do is swerve into this other lane and I hit oncoming traffic. And like, Mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't even take much accidental movement for that to happen. And I'm so comfortable driving because I've done it for so long, but I still feel intimidated by the size of the vehicle that I'm just in control of and that society is okay with me being in control of it. And I, so I feel completely that same way with authority. It absolutely scares the hell out of me uh, on the one hand. And the potential for mayhem. (laughs) Yeah. And then also I've done it for so long, you know, I've been an authority over others for so long that I'm comfortable with it. And I sort of fear the comfort. Uh, Okay. So there's a, there's a level of kind of respect for the, the danger um, but also, you know, you're, you're, you've had your many years, you've had your thousand hours or 10,000 hours, rather. You feel, you feel like you're kind of an expert. I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. I'm not sure you ever, yeah, I'm not sure you ever become an expert in it. I, f- I feel comfortable with it. I feel comfortable with the fact that I'm going to be making lots of mistakes going forward, right? That, yeah. uh, they know how to recover. Yeah. I mean, actually, so our CTO got angry with me just last week because, I mean, it it was a a playful angry, but he's like, Kendall, it's like the worst advice ever when I come to you and ask you for advice and you say, I don't have any advice, but you're worrying about the right thing. This is your job to worry about this. (laughs) (laughs) Jerk. (laughs) I'd love to tell you what to do, but I don't have a clue. You you have a, 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 you know, hypothesis for what you think is going to work and... uh, I don't have any better suggestions. Go try the thing. Um, so, uh, so wait, to go back to the the um, the story you told about your first time out driving, do you think your dad did this to you on purpose? Do you think that he took you on the freeway to give you an idea of how terrifying it was going to be? Like this is serious. Uh, no, my dad's not really like that. I think. So my dad basically raised himself, you know, like he was 10 and his brother was eight and their parents dropped him off in a canoe and picked him up down river three days later, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. I think he just grew up with a, this just isn't a big deal philosophy. And and he always, you know, treated me like that for better or for worse. I mean, I had tremendous independence at a very young age, but I think that was just his life philosophy of you're intimidated by this, but it's not a big deal. We'll just get on the interstate and you'll realize it's not a big deal and you're going to get used to it. Um, oh, well, it sounds, it seems like it has really served you extremely well. It's that, that, uh, level of like, just go for it. And, uh, and you'll make it work. <laughs> I oh think my gosh. Well, a super useful to, amount, a kind of background to have to argue that that doesn't, you know, isn't tremendously informed by the fact that I am a, you know, white male born to a relatively privileged <laughs> middle-class family would be absolutely remiss. Hold that out. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I'm, I'm a keen, keenly aware of how much my uh, privilege informs my thinking that if I just pound the pavement hard enough, I can accomplish anything because for the most part in my life, if I worked hard mm-hmm. enough at something, eventually someone would say yes, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. It's true. It is. It is different, but it, it is. It has also served you well. It can be both things. You can oh, have yeah. the privilege, I mean, but the privilege was good for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, sure, was convenient. So it sounds like you had some uh, a different relationship with authority when you were a bit younger, but maybe not a lot. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, I don't feel like. I don't feel like my relationship with authority has changed much. Uh, I mean, having authority 
that's different because you don't have much authority when you're a kid, right? Um, yeah. But I think, uh, like, my my response to authority has always been, I genuinely enjoy great authority. I am absolutely driven nuts by painful authority. Um, mm-hmm. But I also have a tendency yeah. to stay at places too long and and long enough for them to sort of shake those problems out. I mean, 10 years at that organization in China, I had a lot of good and a lot of terrible bosses. And uh, some of them left because <laughs> I asked them to, but some of them just sort of naturally shook out. Uh, and, yeah, you know. yeah. and I feel like the those sorts of organizations, and this is going to be my my own perception as having you know having had a background in with a religious organization of my own that those kinds of environments tend to be more it's either really great because the people care and they're taking good care of each other or they're really bad because they're incredibly hypocritical and people aren't actually you know they're not in it for the right reasons or they they treat each other like family in the bad way. <laughs> oh my gosh, you've, you, you've opened a can of worms there. But yeah, I so so I'm every bit, uh, you know, I believe, uh, I believe this Jesus guy every bit as much as I ever have. But I have so little patience for uh, organizations, religious organizations, and particularly since I left that one, and I look back at some of the things that uh, were going on, some of the things that, uh, you know, I didn't fight back on, or maybe even perpetuated, and I'm just mortified. You know, it was it was very interesting to me coming back and joining tech, because in tech, it was, you know, uh, our founder, Matt, I remember, you know, I'd make a mistake and he'd come to me and be like, hey, what happened? And I'd say, well, I made a mistake and this is what happened. This is why I did it wrong. And he's like, oh, well, did you learn from that mistake? Can you stop making that mistake again in the future? And I'm like, yeah. And that was kind sure. of the end of the discussion. I was kind of shocked by that because in a religious organization, it's kind of why did you make this mistake? You know, what what sin is there in your life that caused you to make this mistake? Are, are you reading uh, your enough? If you were just praying more, would this mistake have not Are you happened? feeling badly enough about having made this mistake? <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh. I'm so, I, I can't believe I survived that as long as I did. I look back on that with just such horror. It's astounding. Well, you're much more patient than, uh, than most people that I've encountered. And I think that probably also uh, has something to do with it. You survived. <laughs> You're I survived. patient. I survived. I'm patient. I don't think anyone's ever described me that way. Um, I'm going to write this down and ask my wife if that's if that's true. Uh, I'm totally putting that <laughs> in the show notes. Rachel said Kendall was patient. That is that is a, and I I'm going to stand by that. Um, so I know you have, you have four kids and you, uh, you, you know, you, you spend most of your time at home when you're not traveling for work. Uh, what are your hobbies outside of work? Yeah. So I don't have tremendous time for hobbies because of the four children. Um, I am, I'm a pipe smoker. Uh, I smoke mm-hmm. a pipe. I try to smoke a pipe every day. I know that sounds hilarious, but most people don't know that <laughs> most pipe smokers aren't very addicted to it. We, uh, I'm, I'm not addicted to it. I have no physical need for it, but I really enjoy it. So I try to get an a pipe a day. I don't usually pull that off. Um, I do own a lathe that was given to me by uh, my uncle and um, grandfather before that, that I have made a few pipes on. Uh, I am not an artisan. I think I am 
an imperfectionist, if that's the opposite of a perfectionist. Um, well, are you aiming at imperfection? <laughs> uh, yeah, I just am entirely too comfortable with it. I, I want my pipe to smoke very, very well. I do not care if my pipe looks good. And I, I need to be clear because I do live in Colorado. This is a tobacco pipe that I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so there's there's that. Uh, I do run in the mountains as often as I can. That is my uh, mental stability is getting up to the mountains to just go for extended runs. And then, uh, I like to write as well, but I, I go through periods where I write a lot and periods where I don't write hardly anything. So. Are you, yeah. It seems like you're in a period where you're not writing anything, or at least I haven't seen anything you've written. Um, is that likely to change? Uh, I'd say it's probably been a year since I've written, uh, avidly. I, I wrote a couple things just even a couple weeks back, but, um, I would like to have the capacity to write more. It's sort of the last thing, you know, I, I, I fight for my time to run. I can fit in a pipe in the middle of the workday if I'm sitting at my computer outside. Uh, but but making time to write requires you know waking up early or staying up late at night with the capacity to focus on it and uh, yeah, getting in the frame of mind. Right, yeah, right. I, I I need it's to hard. do it more. It, I, I write to know what I'm thinking. You know, like to mm-hmm. solidify what I think about a thing and. Uh, yeah tech writing is like that a lot as well like making sure you you don't know that you understand something until you write it down or explain it to someone else yeah absolutely maybe that is the same process right um and ultimately you know you you've you've been a leader for most of your life it sounds like at this point so i don't know that it has really affected your personal life in a positive or negative way Uh, you have any thoughts on that I mean, I've definitely been a leader for most of my career. I don't know about most of my life yet. Uh, maybe, maybe getting close to that. I, I, yeah, the way that it affects my personal life, and this is terrible, but I realize that I can be on a one-on-one with a report and be incredibly empathetic and be very good at asking, you know, how do you want me to support you in this? Do you do you just want to vent? Do you want advice? Uh, how should I respond? And I can walk out and I can interact with my family and totally fail at those things. It's, it's horribly <laughs> depressing to me that I, I can, I often, uh, interact better with, um, coworkers because I'm thinking about it constantly in the sense of, I need to treat this person right. And, uh, in my family, I just let my guard down. And I think that's why mm. it sometimes happens, but there's, there's a lot of times where I look back on an interaction with my wife and I'm mortified that I, I, I didn't have more presence of mind, but to my credit, I'm, you know, typically cooking or something at the same time when that happens. Uh, <laughs> it's only so much bandwidth. It's interesting right. though, like, uh, that, that is the professional environment and the fact that it is your, you know, I am paid to do this job to, further the no, the productivity of the company and the happiness of the employers and then you're you're at home this is this is not specifically your job perhaps or you're just more relaxed about things hmm. i think it's it has a lot to do with yeah just letting my guard down uh yeah and you know it's the same thing at work i'm very good at knowing i don't have to talk the whole time <laughs> I I mean, I like to think I'm very good at that. My team would probably argue with that. Um, But at at home, it's very, or when I'm just with friends, I I completely shut off that self-awareness sometimes. And I can easily just, you know, take over the conversation and talk way too much. It's the same thing. But it's also at work, I don't have an eight-year-old poking another eight-year-old, you know, saying, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself (laughs) while I'm trying to, you know, do X or Y. 
Um, yeah, I can uh, I can relate to you know not not the the eight year old part, but you know running out of spoons to be uh, to be as thoughtful as I would want to be. <laughs> yeah, I um, wish that wasn't the yeah. case, but it's it it does. What you, what you are human, Kendall? You know, I am human. You prefer to am. think of yourself as or, a robot, or am I dancer? Are you a <laughs> you're a beard growing device? <laughs> 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 uh, all right. Well, we are coming up to the end of our time here, which is oh, sad. Um, I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to interview you the way you got to interview me. Um, where can people find you on the internet, Kendall? Yeah. So, uh, gosh, there's all the places. I am inconsistent in my naming everywhere, but uh, on Twitter, it is at blatant error. Uh, I think right, that I articulated that, that clearly enough. Yeah. I, I think I can spell it. Um, and uh, do you have any thoughts for the future of your your um, I would like your own career or perhaps the future of this podcast? Um, gosh, those are two big questions. Uh, I don't have a clear insight into what my future career looks like. I'd like to end up uh, overseas again at some point in the not too distant future um, for my kids' sake. Um, as for this podcast, I don't know. I'm really having fun doing this with you, Rachel. You're really good at this. Ew. You're you're a better interviewer than me. I don't know if you noticed that in this back and forth, um, but uh, it's fun just doing this together. with you. And yeah, I, I intend to just keep doing it because there's lots more interesting people to talk to. So, Absolutely. I'm looking forward to every episode. Thank you. Thank you, Kendall. Thank you. Thanks for having me on my own podcast. <laughs> Goodbye.